It remains an unfortunate fact of life that money can't buy happiness. It can, however, buy you a new shirt, magnet, sticker, mug, or journal featuring exclusive designs related to this podcast. By visiting a historyofjapan.threadless.com and buying some of the items featured there, you get yourself something beautiful and help support this podcast at the same time. Again, that's a historyofjapan.threadless.com. Visit the store today. Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 3, Episode 13, The Life of Crown Prince Shotoku. It is my great pleasure to introduce you to one of the most enigmatic, colorful, and legendary figures in Japanese history. He is credited with many of Japan's first, a lot of which he doesn't actually deserve, but he casts a long shadow over Japanese history nonetheless, and his mythical influence would be felt for a thousand years after his death, possibly longer. His name, as the title of the episode suggests, was Crown Prince Shotoku. Because he comes from the Asuka period, certain details of his life are considered legendary. For the sake of simplification, I'll start by telling his story as it appears in the Chronicles, and then afterward balance that with modern historical criticism. Future generations of religious and secular leaders in Japan no doubt felt indebted to him, and they certainly embellished some of the details of his life. So, without further ado, here is the life of Crown Prince Shotoku. Born on February 7, 574 CE, he was initially named Umayado, which means stable door. The story goes that he was named for the place where he was born, in front of a stable. His father was King Yomei, whom I hope you'll recall from episode 9. Yomei was born of a Soga mother, and thus was supported by the Soga clan when he took the throne in 585. He reigned for two years before dying, and while the chronicles do not specifically mention an assassination, Many historians have posited that foul play should be suspected. He was in his mid-forties when he died, and the political circumstances around his reign would make anyone suspicious. Episode 9 covered what happened next. Civil war between the Soga and the Mononobe, ending in the destruction of the Mononobe clan, and the ascension of Buddhism as an accepted religion within Japan's domains. Just before the final victory over the Mononobe, Prince Shotoku allegedly swore an oath that he would build a grand temple if they won the war. According to the Nihon Shoki, he sponsored the construction of Shitennoji Temple, which still resides to this day in Osaka. Shitenno means four kings, and refers to the four heavenly kings, or four guardians, of Mahayana Buddhism, to whom Crown Prince Shotoku expressed his devotion just before the Battle of Shigisan. 
This was the first of many such pious contributions, as the prince became famous for his devotion to Buddhism. In addition to sponsoring the building of Shiten Noji Temple, Shotoku gained a reputation as a champion for the Buddhist faith and for Soga power. While he promoted the spread of this new religion throughout the nation, he was not an exclusionary zealot. Whenever he visited a temple, the Nihon Shoki tells us he also paid homage to a local indigenous shrine. Like his late father, King Yomei, his desire was not to replace the native religion, but to augment it. His relative, Soga no Umako, admired the organization of Baikje, and Shotoku shared his desire to see the Yamato court likewise just as elevated and empowered as their Korean counterparts. What did Buddhism offer that Shotoku could have found so appealing? When studying the religion's worldview and precepts out of context, Buddhism might seem like a very solitary religion where a practitioner is invested only in seeking their own enlightenment. This could not be further from the truth, for while seeking enlightenment and an extinguishing of the desires that cause suffering was certainly a goal, the heart of the Buddhist practice is in the Sangha, that is, the community. The temples were not just beautiful monuments to Sakyamuni, but active communities which had a clear-cut ranking system through which initiates could earn promotions by various forms of serving the community, memorizing the sutras, and through their personal commitment to following the precepts. I believe this system was what primarily interested the Soga and Crown Prince Shotoku, and that their desire was to see a similar system implemented among the aristocracy of the Yamato court, through which ranks and titles would be determined by how well one served the monarch. In such a system, power was effectively vested in the sovereign, and, more critically, in his closest advisors like the Soga clan. This brings us to a point which I feel often gets lost in written Japanese history, the earliest form of Buddhism which was imported onto Japan's shores was primarily adopted by the powerful, while the common people largely continued to worship at indigenous shrines and follow the seasonal rituals and communal practices promoted by the Nakatomi and Inbei clans. The concept of religion in Japan was still very much a collective ideal rather than an individual conviction, for the majority of its residents. After King Yomei's potentially untimely demise and the subsequent struggle against the Mononobe clan, Soga no Umako became the unquestioned de facto ruler of the nation. Prince Shotoku was around 13 when he fought at the Battle of Shigisan, still too young to hold any office with real power. Throughout his teenage years, the nation was ruled, in name at least, by King Sushun, whom Umako had placed on the throne after the Mononobe were destroyed. King Sushun, however, grew disappointed in holding the office over time and wanted to wield actual power and not just be a figurehead for Soga authority. 
The story goes that he was hunting a wild boar one day, and when he spotted one, he remarked to one of his companions that he would like to kill Umako like he was about to kill this boar. When this remark was reported to Soga no Umako, he arranged for the king to meet an untimely end, possibly believing that the king was about to make such arrangements for him, and that this was a situation of kill or be killed. Thus, King Sushun was assassinated after sitting on the throne for only five years. Under otherwise normal circumstances, a nation can survive a short-lived monarch, but two in a row can lead to power vacuum and instability. Umako knew that whomever he chose to sit next on the chrysanthemum throne needed to be someone reliable whom he could count on to perform the seasonal rituals, enjoy writing poetry or painting, and generally leave the actual running of the state to the Oomi himself. He selected a widow and half-sister of the late King Bidatsu, remembered by history as Empress Suiko. In keeping with trying to use contemporary titles rather than the retroactively assigned Empress, I will refer to her from this point forward as Queen Suiko. Queen Suiko was the Yamato court's first known reigning queen of the Asuka period. She did not wield absolute power, but, like her predecessors, essentially performed the seasonal rituals and gave official orders when Soga no Umako required. While the queen largely cooperated with this arrangement, there is some evidence that she was not afraid to speak her mind or even openly disagree with Umako. This may have been one of the reasons the Soga Omi decided to appoint a regent to help ensure that the queen did not defy him regarding anything that mattered. He chose Crown Prince Shotoku to serve in this role in 593. He would have been 19 years old. Though he was young, Shotoku appears in the Chronicles to already be a man of strong convictions, many of which the same chronicles claimed were shared by Queen Suiko. The Nihon Shoki says that both were committed Buddhists. In fact, the queen had been living as a Buddhist nun before she was called upon to take the throne. According to the Nihon Shoki, she instructed Shotoku to spread Buddhism far and wide across the land, which he was only too happy to do. But Shotoku's interests did not end with religious institutions. The young man displayed an unquenchable thirst for all things from both the Korean peninsula and China. In episode 10, we discussed how the Sui dynasty successfully reunited China under a single government after centuries of regional sovereignty in the late 500s. Shotoku admired the Chinese style of government, as did Soga no Umako, for its pageantry and ability to consolidate power. An avid reader, he consumed as many books as he could lay hands on, including the Chinese classics and many works by Confucian scholars. In 603, after he had been regent for ten years, he introduced the twelve-level cap-and-rank system to the court. Under the old Kabane system, you might recall from episode 7 of this season, 
courtiers inherited their rank like Omi or Muraji from their fathers and would simply slide into these positions at court. The 12-level system devised by Shotoku was drastically different. Inspired by Confucian standards, each of the 12 ranks was actually a half-rank, indicating a greater or lesser level of a certain virtue. These were demarcated at court by the employment of actual silk caps, which each had a dyed feather sticking from them which would indicate the courtier's ranks. This was not a purely Shotoku innovation, but an adaptation of a similar cap-and-rank systems utilized periodically in China and Korea. Unlike China, which partially determined rank by one's performance with the national exam system, Japan's ranking system would largely depend on how well a given courtier had served the sovereign. Here again we see the cleverness in the adaptation rather than wholesale adoption of foreign ideas, a hallmark of Japanese culture in these times. Each of the twelve ranks was actually based on one of the six virtues split in half by a greater or lesser aspect of said virtue. Hence the third and fourth ranks are greater benevolence and lesser benevolence, and the seventh and eighth ranks are greater sincerity and lesser sincerity. While this rather flamboyant system of ranking the aristocrats at court might seem a little silly to our modern perception, it served one of Umako and Shotoku's goals. It centered attention on the monarch and made the nobles of Japan more dependent upon him and the court itself for their own legitimacy. None of this is to say that this cap-rank system cemented any kind of permanent authority upon the Yamato court. In fact, Japanese history often ebbs and flows between imperial authority and the regional power of independent landowners. In 604, the sources tell us that Shotoku unveiled his most ambitious work yet, Japan's first constitution. The Jushichijo Kenpo, as it is called in Japanese, is really a series of moral precepts rather than actual laws or duties, and it more closely resembles the Ten Commandments than the Magna Carta. This is because it follows a Confucian form of thinking, prescribing moral behavior to both the sovereign and his court, as well as the common people. While Western law codes tend to focus on resolving disputes, Eastern law codes tend to focus on preventing disputes from arising in the first place. The 604 Constitution consists of 17 articles, and I will read it in its entirety in a bonus episode at the end of this season. The next important event for Prince Shotoku came in 607 when he decided to send what became his most famous letter and arguably his most lasting contribution to the world. A little backstory first. In 605, the Sui dynasty, in an effort to reopen communication with unified China and the rest of the world, sent a letter to the Yamato court, which included the rather polite phrase, the sovereign of Sui respectfully inquires about the sovereign of Wa. Prince Shotoku responded with his own letter on Queen Suiko's behalf in 607, which began, From the sovereign of the land of the rising sun, 
to the sovereign of the land of the setting sun. There is some level of mystery surrounding the outright rudeness of this reply. Perhaps the prince feared that Chinese unity might portend a future invasion of the archipelago, just as they had already attempted in Kogurio in 598, and wished to declare that Japan was an equal nation to China and would not easily submit. Perhaps he had some personal dislike for Emperor Yang and simply wanted to express that. Regardless of Shotoku's intention, he had coined a new name for the nation of Wa. Hopefully you remember that Wa is not an indigenous name for Japan, but a designation given to it by China. When Shotoku referred to his nation as the land of the rising sun, he used two particular kanji. The first is the symbol for the sun, which was once a circle with a central dot, but by this point had become the vertical rectangle bisected by a horizontal line. The second is the symbol for root, which also means origin. Thus, we have a kanji compound meaning the sun's origin, which in Japanese is pronounced Nihon or Nippon. This became the Japanese name for Japan, and it still is today. The main logo for this podcast contains those two kanji if you'd like to see them for yourself. The following year, the Sui envoy arrived at the Yamato court to relay Emperor Yang's reply. The Chinese monarch seems to have completely ignored the insult, but also didn't send very many gifts. In 609, when the envoy returned to the Sui court along with the Japanese emissary, the letter he brought was much more polite and congenial, and in reply the emperor sent many treasures to Japan and thanked them for their kind regards. What was the point of this generosity from the Sui perspective? The Chinese opinion of Japan, much like its opinion of most of its East Asian neighbors, was that it was a backwards country ruled by illiterate ruffians. Thus, Shotoku's rude opening may have just been laughed off as barbarians being barbarians. However, it could be that the emperor may have been trying to feel the Japanese out regarding whether they would join him in a campaign against Koguryo, who, although at peace with China for the moment, had provoked a war with brazen raids less than ten years before. This brings us back to Queen Suiko. While Shotoku seemed determined to build the Yamato court into his idea of a proper centralized state of a civilized nation, Suiko seems focused on the Korean peninsula, according to the Nihon Shoki. In 602, shortly before Shotoku's constitution was published, the queen ordered an invasion of Silla and appointed Prince Kume to lead the invasion. The invasion was staged on the northern coast of Kyushu, an alleged army of 25,000 men raised for the effort. However, the Nihon Shoki claims that the prince fell ill and died, thus the invasion was put on hold. In the meantime, Baikje sent many priests, artists, and craftspeople as tribute, likely in part to secure Japan's commitment to attacking their peninsular enemies. The queen was troubled by the prince's death and seems very determined to preserve the friendship between their countries. Thus she appointed 
Prince Tahema to take his young late brother's life and lead the expedition. He arrived on northern Kyushu and took over the preparations, but then his wife passed away, so he returned to Yamato and abandoned the project. I'm tempted to interpret a deeper meaning behind these stories, though keep in mind that this account comes a hundred years after the event in question. It seems that the necessary mechanisms for large-scale international warfare still weren't quite in place in Japan during the early 600s. After Prince Tahema returns, though whether this is because of grief or because of the indigenous superstitions about the uncleanness of being near death, we aren't sure, the invasion is abandoned and seemingly never taken back up. Clearly there were fighting men in these provinces, and certainly regional leaders who could theoretically take them into battle themselves, so why didn't the Yamato court just assign the invasion to one of the Kyushu leaders directly? The answer, I think, is probably multifaceted. Allowing a regional authority to raise an army for an international purpose is a recipe for disaster if you are trying to centralize power. Those regional leaders might take their newfound army and engage in a little regime change when they return with their battle-hardened troops, gaining legitimacy through their newfound international connections. Thus, the royal family appointing leaders from among its members makes some sense here. However, the abandonment of the project after the removal of two generals seems premature, possibly indicating that the expense of feeding and housing these soldiers was either too much of a strain on the Yamato court or on the local economy of northern Kyushu. None of this is particularly the fault of Queen Suiko, who was likely doing the best she could with what she had. A very feasible reason why the expedition against Silla was not assigned to another relative is the possibility that there was no one else she could trust who was not already engaged in other important work. In any case, Suiko was no pushover, and we'll talk more about other notable achievements in her career in the next episode when we turn our focus to the Soga clan. Getting back to Prince Shotoku, there are three important Japanese commentaries on Buddhist texts which are credited to the young prince. Referred to as the Sangyo Gisho, these commentaries are based in large part upon commentaries of Chinese monks during the Liang dynasty. While thus they are not entirely original, they are also not exact copies and contain the original thoughts of their Japanese author alongside the words of those whom they clearly admired. They do technically qualify as the first Japanese texts, which, if the prince indeed composed them, would make him Japan's first author. Interestingly enough, the creation of the first kana alphabets, which are phonetic symbols which correspond to the sounds of the Japanese language, is also attributed to Crown Prince Shotoku. Being credited as the founder of Japanese Buddhism, Shotoku would remain an important religious figure throughout Japan's history. One story, which is so clearly mythological that I won't be returning to it afterward, contains themes and elements shockingly similar to those found in Christianity. It goes like this. Bodhidharma, the founder of the Buddhist school, which would eventually become Zen Buddhism, 
came to visit Japan and disguised himself as a poor, starving beggar. Prince Shotoku passed by him on his travels and asked him his name. Bodhidharma did not reply, but rather than take offense at this, the prince gave him something to eat, along with a fine purple garment. The next day, the prince asked about the beggar, only to learn that he was dead. He ordered him buried, and later he visited his tomb. When he saw that the ground was already covered in grass, and appeared as if it hadn't been disturbed, he ordered the coffin excavated. When they opened it, there was no one inside. Only the prince's purple garment lay within, which the prince wore from that day forward. Okay, now that we've learned about the Nihon Shoki's version of Prince Shotoku, let's review the modern historical consensus. First, surprisingly, is the fact that Shotoku doesn't appear to actually have been a very serious Buddhist. While the sutra commentaries we mentioned earlier, the Sanyo Gisho, still qualify as Japan's earliest texts, we have no real evidence that Shotoku authored them. In fact, many historians claim that he wouldn't have had the skill to author such works. You might be wondering how the author of Japan's first constitution could be questioned regarding his literary bona fides. Well, about that constitution. Yes, that's right. We have no real evidence that Shotoku authored that work either. In fact, most believe that it was written decades after his death and attributed to him posthumously. And while we're on the subject of written language, let me clearly state that he absolutely did not invent kana, a creation which is rightfully attributed to noble ladies who created them in lieu of being taught to read Chinese characters. So what did he actually accomplish? The cap and rank system does seem to be legitimately his brainchild, although this was a short-lived achievement which would be replaced before the Asuka period ended. One accomplishment we are certain of is his naming of Japan. In fact, this act of self-definition on behalf of his people would become a thorny issue with China until the mainland finally agreed to stop referring to Nihon as Wa. That was thanks to Shotoku, and it is no small accomplishment. We have every reason to believe that the version of Crown Prince Shotoku who appears in the Chronicles is barely more than a fictional collage of an ideal leader who championed Buddhism and wrote great commentaries for it, conceived of a more advanced Japanese state through the crafting of a constitution, and reformed the government along Confucian lines. Who is responsible for spreading these stories about Shotoku? The short answer is a lot of people. The mid and late 600s, as we will come to see, was a tumultuous period in Japanese history featuring assassinations, betrayals, and civil war. It stands to reason that people struggling to survive in the midst of such uncertainty and change might look back to an idealized leader of the past, especially one who died before he could rightfully take his place as emperor and secure the chrysanthemum throne for his children. It seems likely that the partisans, who would later support Crown Prince Shotoku's descendants as candidates for the throne, 
had ample reason to spread the tales far and wide of Shotoku's love of Buddhism and his clever crafting of a Confucian constitution. If only the current leaders were as talented or as compassionate as Crown Prince Shotoku was. This will not be the last season in which we discuss Prince Shotoku. Keep your ears open for future appearances in Buddhist Dreams and Visions. While we cannot be certain about every last detail of his life, he is still an important figure to discuss because of his impact upon Japanese history. 622 is the year of his recorded death, a rather sudden event in the Nihon Shoki, which claims he died in the middle of the night. It further states that there was passionate mourning for him throughout the country, and that a priest serving in Japan who was originally from Koguryo predicted that he would meet Prince Shotoku in the Pure Land on a certain day the next year, and that he actually did die on that day when it came. Thus it is said that the prince was truly a sage, as was the Koguryo priest. While modern historians are often skeptical of his piety, his contributions to Japanese Buddhism during his lifetime, as well as his status as a literary savant, he did indeed give Japan a name of its own and was later named as a Bodhisattva. I'll post some paintings of him on the supplemental post, as well as statues of his religious persona, so you can have a look for yourself. Next time, we'll explore the history of the Soga clan and their rise to the greatest heights of power in the land. Until then, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at A History of Japan. Visit the online store, ahistoryofjapan.threadless.com, and find us on the web, ahistoryofjapan.com. Thank you.